Okay, please come on in and grab your seat. Oh man, I don't have volume over anybody. Come on in, grab your seat. We'll get started. Hey, good morning. You guys are a noisy bunch this morning. Come on in, grab your seat. If the Tuckers will wrap up his conversation. Wow, okay. No, I have no crowd control. There's no, there's no chance. Thank you, Carolyn. Appreciate it. Some people are paying attention. The rest of you, when you're louder, should I be louder? If you all come in, I, I literally have a microphone and can't. Oh, lights. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Anthony was about to have to blast you guys out with like a, a bullhorn or something. Good morning. Well, now that I've got you all seated, would you stand up? I'd like to read from Titus 2. We're going to cover, we're going to look at one verse today, but we're going to read 10 of them. Starting in Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life-changing message of the Bible that your son came and died on the cross for our sins. We are unworthy and yet you've done it and you've offered it to us free of charge fact we can't even earn it and that is the greatest news of all because if we could earn it we'd mess it up so we are thankful to you lord for doing all of the work of it gotta ask um, that as i come as ross has faithfully told us um, come bearing pride in myself uh, where there is almost no escaping it until eternity and uh, lord i ask that you would uh, help me to be humble this moment that your word would be magnified and I would be small. God, I ask that you prepare the hearts of everyone who would hear uh, your word this morning, that it would uh, change their lives, change their hearts, to be more in line with your son, Jesus Christ. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be covering Titus 2.2. 2. I'm going to get through one verse, Lord willing. Nathan, I've picked on him for a bit. He's covered a half a chapter a Sunday on average, and uh, if he keeps at that pace, he'll finish when he's 83. If I keep at my pace, I will finish halfway through the millennium. So uh, we'll give it back to Nathan here shortly so we can get through something. But uh, we're going to cover 2-2, and if you'll remember from last week, uh, from the context of Titus, uh, Titus has arrived on this island of Crete, which is a, uh, a miscreant of an island uh, people are uh, generally 
immoral type people. And Paul has left him here to establish order amongst the believers. The believers are scattered throughout the island in various cities, and he's saying in each city, bring them together, bring them together in an orderly way, based on sound doctrine, and in a relationship um, that comes out of that sound doctrine. And so we learned last week um, that church order is based on sound doctrine, and that sound doctrine is applied relationally. And the first thing that Titus was to do was to start by putting elders into place. And the elders, the qualifications for the elders are character qualities. Um, They are to have sound doctrine and to be of good moral character. And their job is to protect against false teaching and false teachers. And so protect the people and then train the people for good works. And so we move from the qualifications of elders past false teachers in chapter 1, and we get to chapter 2, and Paul starts to address how the church is to relate to one another. Of course, it's all based around sound doctrine, and that sound doctrine then puts us into relationship with one another um, that will then protect us against false teachers, false doctrine, and godly relationships, put us into godly relationships. Um, When we get to verse 2, we start with the first of several uh, categories of people. He's going to cover older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then bond servants. So today we're going to start with older men because that is where Paul starts, and I think there's something important about that starting position. So let's read verse 2 again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now the trouble I have here is we can't get very far into the verse without running into a little bit of a cultural problem. He starts with older men. And uh, here in America, we struggle with this. Um, The thinking in America, the worldly thinking of America has started to invade the church. Um, Inadvertently, subconsciously, it has crept in. And I, I see it in my own life, the way that I think about age and old people, sometimes in my joking Uh, or my interactions, my priorities of life. Um, The way the world thinks about age has invaded my life, and I think that if you were to reflect on yourself and in your own heart, uh, you might see evidence of worldly thinking in your heart as well. So as a church, corporately in America, we struggle with this, and I think it it also plays into us here at Country Oaks. And, um, And so we have to examine our hearts and realign our thinking to, worldly, to godly thinking. Get away from the world's uh, view of age and get into God's view of age. And I think to do that is critical to understand verse 2. If we don't start in the right place, we will have a misunderstanding of verse 2. And so uh, we need to first understand what is it the world is teaching about age. And then we need to say, okay, what is it that God is teaching about age and realign our thinking? The world has uh, the wrong idea about age. It says that old ideas and old people are wrong and bad. And that comes from two false premises, I think. The first premise that the world says is that humans evolved from animals, um, which is a ridiculous notion in its own right. It's more philosophical than scientific. Uh, But never mind that. The, the, The facts are that the world largely believes that humans evolved from animals. Well, what that then leads people to conclude is that new is better and old is obsolete. 
that's the whole nature of evolution, is that things are getting progressively more advanced and better, and so the old has passed away, the old is no longer necessary, it is no longer as good, the old is obsolete. And the new must necessarily replace the old. And this evolutionary theory finds its origins in a philosophical theory. We won't get into all that for today, but you have to understand where they're coming from. The new replaces the old, and that's good. The second premise is that man is inherently good. That is, man is born good, morally virtuous, which if we are all just evolved, how do you get morals? But never mind that for today. Their assumption is that man is born good, and culture and society corrupts man. So, therefore, a young child is innocent, pure, and right, and an old man has been corrupted and ruined by society, and therefore is wrong. Now, if you have children, you know that that's not true. You uh, may observe that the children are disobedient sinners, much like yourself. But that plays into the thinking, then, that the new, less corrupt less culturally influenced person is more noble, more pure, more morally righteous. Older ideas, older people have been corrupted and must be thrown out and done away with. That then leads them to say that old people aren't valuable. Younger people are more pure, more right, less corrupt. Young people are right. Old people are wrong. They'll say something like, the old people, they are stuck in their ways and are stupid. They are a drain on our society. They are a waste of our resources. Young people are the valuable ones. They are progressing. They are uh, less corrupt. They are productive and useful to society. Um, I've been watching a a TV show. uh, I I haven't been watching. A friend of mine has been watching because as a pastor, I only just read my Bible all day every day. But... A friend of mine was watching a TV show and telling me about it. And what he was saying is that there's this grandmother in this TV show who is in a wheelchair, and she pops into the show from time to time. Uh, But largely, she is pushed aside and made fun of for her ideas, her old ways of thinking, and her her whole mentality is obsolete. And so she is pushed aside, cast out. And this is the way that pop culture thinks about things. And and feeds to us in the church as we participate in these things, this subconsciously starts to affect the way that we think about old people, and we start to push them aside. Our society has done a similar thing uh, in something that they call old folks' homes. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, special medical care, someone who is no longer able to be taken care of by an untrained professional, but a trained professional must take care of them. That's not what I'm talking about. We have in a large part, taken people who are older and less useful and a bother to our thinking and put them into one group community and isolated them from influencing society. We want to remove their influence from society. Their thinking is old. Their thinking is obsolete. It is bad and wrong. Let's put them together and get them out of here. And so we have separated, as a culture, old people from influencing us. Young is better. Young is the thing that we desire So much so that the anti-aging industry worldwide is $60 billion. $60 billion of money is spent every year to reverse the effects of aging. 
would not be surprised to learn that the U.S. leads the world in this. We spend more money on anti-aging products than anybody else in the world. It is our obsession. Um, the uh, companies have learned that uh, to say you should be uh, younger or anti-aging has sort of has a, a vain tone to it, so they have changed their language to go from anti-aging and younger to fuller, richer, healthier-looking skin, hair, whatever it may be, to try and draw you in, to, to make yourself appear younger than you are. It isn't something that is genuinely concerned with your health, no, which would be a moral virtue to be healthy. That would be great. No, but they've used that moral virtue, corrupted it to say you should feel younger, you should look younger. And we have participated and bought into these things. The superficial tagline has replaced something that was virtuously good and duped us to participating. So this worldview of age has started to invade the church and our thinking, and, and we don't realize it, but it does. It does affect us. We don't value age as a church as we ought to. We avoid age. We still try and think that uh, we should stay young. We see this play out in our lives when someone asks us our age. We're offended by that question. Don't ask me my age. Why? Because I don't want to admit that I'm getting old. I want to stay young. Is this the way the Bible talks about it? We'll look at that in a minute. Not only that, but we tend to gravitate to people of our own, sh own age. So we put the old people together over here, and we put the middle-aged people here, and the young people over here. And uh, we put them over there. We don't have to hear them. We don't have to be challenged in our thinking. We can get inside of an echo chamber of our thoughts. We're in a silo of our own thoughts and not interact with one another and be sharpened, as we're going to read in Titus 2. So these thoughts in the world have started to invade our, our church. Um, so much so that I think it even affects our translation and interpretation of Scripture. And so now we come to our verse, chapter 2, verse 2 in Titus, and it says older men. And why does it say older men? It's curious because in the Greek, the word is old men. It isn't older in a comparative sense. It's old in an objective sense. The word is actually a very rare word in the New Testament. It's only used twice. Once in Philemon, when Paul says he is an old man now, he's at the end of his age, probably in his 60s. He's an old man. The other part, the other place it's used is in Luke 1.18. And Zechariah describes himself as an old man. This is John the Baptist's dad, and he says uh, that he is advanced in years. He's beyond, he says, how could it be possible that my wife is pregnant? I'm beyond childbearing years because I'm an old man. And his thinking is, primary, he uses this word for age. I've, I've gotten old. Now, this word that Paul uses in Titus 2.2 for older men is not the same word as he uses in chapter 1, verse 5, when he's talking about the elders. In verse, one, verse 5, he uses the word that has a whole range of meaning. Um, it can mean anything from uh, old in age. It could mean that. Uh, it sometimes means uh, mature in character. Um, it sometimes refers to uh, a position in the community, such as we have 
elders at our church, right? So it can be a title as well. That word in verse 1-5 has a specific, or has a whole wide range of meaning. He doesn't use that word in 2, in chapter 2, verse 2. He uses a very different word. And from the context of the other two verses we have, plus it's used throughout uh, the Old Testament and the Septuagint, it's used in other literary writings, that word has the connotation of a specific age group, not a specific maturity level. Um, the Most commentators would say that this is probably in the 50 to 60 year range, right? that once you've sort of finished raising children, that you've started to advance into the years where you are, are starting to have grandchildren, that you're thinking more about uh, you know, the end of your life than you are about what you're going to become as an adult. This is the idea of being old. Um, you're generally done raising kids. Your hair is starting to turn gray or white. You're starting to get wrinkles. Your body has started to carry the scars of life. You're closer to death than you are to life. Um, and so this word is objectively old in verse 2. But why do they translate it older? And I think it's because old in the English language carries the connotation of a negative thing. And that's not at all what Paul is intending here. And so to carry that across, I think the translators try to say, they try to soften it a little bit. Older men. Not to, not to give a different meaning to it that, you know, it's a comparative sense. No, it's just people who are advanced in years. But because of this, we have some confusion. Because if you don't know the Greek, You'll look at this word and you'll say older. Oh, that means comparative. The ER means comparative. Like, uh, you know, my son is young and I am older than my son. Comparative sense. But that's not what the word intends. It intends to be specific age bracket. Um, and so why do, I, why do I belabor this point about age? Because we've lost the biblical view of age and we've adopted the cultural view of age. And so we have to undo that before we can really start to understand this. Because if we say, verse 2 says, more mature men are to be sober-minded, etc. What are we really, what is it saying then? What would that verse be saying? It would say that more mature men are to be more mature men. That, that's a, that's a non-statement. My least favorite phrase, I shouldn't tell you this. Okay, I... I really don't like the phrase, it is what it is. It's a non-statement. It is, might as well not be said. What, what, have you, what have you contributed to the conversation when you say, it is what it is? Nothing. You've said nothing. You've wasted your, your time and mine. You've wasted your breath. Please don't say it is what it is. Sometimes I say it and I rebuke myself. Saying it is what it is is like telling a dog to be a dog. All right, dog, continue to be a dog. Okay. I what I was going to do. Why did you? It's useless. If we interpret 2-2 to say mature men are to be mature men, what, have we, what has Paul contributed to the conversation? Nothing. It's not helpful to us. is isn't useful. Is it true? Yes, it's true. Mature men should be mature men, but he's not saying that. He's saying old men are to be mature in their faith, and we'll get into the details of that. And so it's important that we understand what the biblical view is of old is. And to do that, I think we need to go to Leviticus. Nathan, it's a plug for you. 
do Leviticus. It's fine. Everybody turn to Leviticus 19, if you would. <clears throat> Leviticus 19.32. And we're going to look at why it's important that we have this worldview of old men. Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Age is to be honored. Age is to be respected. Age is to be valued in the biblical worldview. So much so that if you look carefully at this verse, when he's talking about honoring an old man, he says, you shall fear your God in the same sentence. Saying, it is on par with fearing God to be respectful and honoring of old men. God cares a great deal about how we think about old men. Well, why is that? Well, you remember that God constantly refers to him as self, as father. It's the way that God relates to us, is as father. And this idea of fatherhood is very important to him. Look at Leviticus 20, verse 9. For if anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. You notice he gives the same punishment as blaspheming God as he does for cursing your parents. This idea of fatherhood is critically important to God, so much so that he says the first commandment with the promise is to honor your father and mother. So on the one hand, dishonoring your parents receives death, and on the, uh, the positive side, honoring your parents receives blessing. God is very concerned with this. Why? The image of God as our Father is critical to us being able to understand who God is to us. He is Father to us. And if we don't understand what it is to be a Father, good father, we won't understand who God is. Furthermore, if we don't exemplify what it is to be a father in a biblical way, we won't exemplify it to the world. The world views God as some evil dictator just waiting to punish the slightest offense against him. But that's not the way the father behaves, loves his son, loves his daughter, wants to bring them in close so it's important that we have a proper understanding of honoring father and mother. You say, well, that's father and mother. That's not old man. Well, let me take you to 1 Timothy. Almost back to Titus. We'll go back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 5, 2, 1 and 2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. What's the principle? We're to treat our old men as fathers, our old women as mothers, so that the idea, the concept of God as Father is universally understood. So that when we treat old men, old women, respectfully, we show the world the way that we relate to God. This is a picture, this is an example. We see this the way it's done in marriage, right? Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church to the world. 
for them to understand how God wants to relate to us. Similarly, the way that we treat old men, the way that we think about old women, is a picture to the unbelieving world of how God relates to us. Super important. Now, Titus 2.2, the key point is not to talk about old men. But if we don't start in the right place, we won't understand it. Verses 2 and 3 are both going to deal with old men and old women. And so we must have this foundation to be able to pull out the right application from these two verses. Now, the young should honor the old. There must be a reason. Why does Paul prioritize old men in his list? give you the reason and we'll get into it in a minute so you've heard it said that children are the future and that's true children are the future of the church that's true but old guys are responsible for training those children old guys are responsible for training the children without the old guys passing down the wisdom of scripture of life putting those things together, if the old guys don't pass that down to the next generation, we're susceptible to false teachers, to false doctrine, to going astray. The culture wants to throw out the old wisdom. The church needs to hold on to it. The church should cherish it, should treasure it, should pass it down generation to generation. The old people who are done raising kids have a vital role to play in the church. Do not check out and stop training us. Maybe you retire from your financial career. You don't need to make money every day anymore. Good. You just gained 40 or 50 hours back in your life. What do you do with that? Are you investing it in the next generation or are you wasting it? It is your character, your behavior, your relationships the rest of the church that's what's going to teach the next generation what it is to be godly how to apply scripture to our lives you old men are to set the example for the young men teaching sound doctrine from the pulpit is a first step but exemplifying it in your own life for the young men to see watch, to learn from. That's where sound doctrine really gets into the heart of people's lives. So, the question is, well then, what does it look like for sound doctrine to be applied to an old man's life? And that actually brings us to our verse today. We're going to get to the Bible. Here we are, 2-2. Let me take a drink and we'll read it. Older men, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Okay, there are four distinctives here. You may say, well, there's six. No, there's actually four, and we'll make that clear in a minute. But there are four distinctives that Paul says old men are to be. And he is urging the old men to be this way. And so what we're going to do here in the next several minutes is look through what an old man should be going to urge you old men to behave this way 
And so uh, sober-minded is number one. They are to be sober-minded. What is meant by sober-minded? They are to think clearly and intentionally about their life. The base meaning of the word has to do with drunkenness. And uh, the idea is to, if you are not drunk, then you can think clearly. If you are drunk, you can't think clearly. That's the base meaning of the word, but it's applied by Paul across to all the context. That in your thinking, you should generally think, be thinking clearly. Young people, conversely, are impulsive. Given to their emotions, easily swayed by their peers. They waste their time and their resources. Someone says, hey, let's go do this fun thing. And they just impulsively go do it. Their peers will say, hey, here's this new idea. We should check this out. And they'll go and do it. They will waste their time and their resources on excessive things, excessive amounts of video games, excessive luxuries, foolishness, expending their time and money on things that are not helpful. Old men should not behave this way. They should think clearly, slowly, and deliberately about what they're doing. They should use their time, energy, and resources intentionally. A wise old man saves his money. For what? For his own possession? No. A wise old man saves his money for the church, for missions, for the poor, for the needy, to give generously. Foolish young man spends it on every passing luxury that comes along. Never saving, never giving, always in need. The godly old man in his thinking is not drawn away by every wind of doctrine that comes along. He is settled in his convictions based on sound doctrine. That doesn't mean that he's stuck in his ways because of a lifetime of foolishness and bitterness. Life's beat him up and he's become so embittered and and angry about life that he no longer can think clearly. No, the old man has, in the, the Holy Spirit, understood the difficulties of his life, thought them through based on Scripture, and come to a sweet, gentle understanding of those things. His re- old man is renewing his mind on sound doctrine and is not led away by false teachers. He thinks deeply on the things of God. It's not easily swayed. The second thing, dignified. Dignified. The old man carries himself in a godly way. The old man doesn't laugh at dirty jokes. He doesn't make crude jokes. He doesn't risk offending someone for the sake of a laugh. This is something that I have struggled with mightily in my life think of something, something pops into my head that would be funny. We're in a, gra- a crowd, a group of people, and I think, ah, I've got a good joke. It's going to make fun of this person, and everyone will laugh. And I just fire off. And what have I done? I've offended that person. I've offended the Lord. And I've walked in a dishonorable way. The old man is not that way. He is very careful with his words and his actions. He wants to build others up, not put them down. He's considerate. He's thought through how his actions and his words are going to affect others. They're kind and courteous. They build up. They don't tear down. He is a joy to be around. You old men, are you a joy to be around? You carry yourself in a dignified way so that others, that young people, are drawn to you. Or are you an old grump? Do you accurately represent God's love 
to the next generation? Or are you so embittered and angry at life that no one wants to be around you anymore? You spend all of your time complaining, all of your time making jokes, hurting, tearing down, being crude. No, old men are not to be this way. They're to be dignified, to carry themselves as representatives of God to the people. Number three, the old man is to be self-controlled. That is, he doesn't give in to the youthful lusts that he once did. He's not entertained by the fleshly lusts or the desires of the eyes. The young man turns his head to look at lustful things. The old man turns away. And in so doing, he sets the example for the young man. Those things that you are turning to, those lustful youths that you have turned to, the old man has learned, as Solomon did, that all of it is vanity. That the things that we try to gather in life are vain. The old man who has retired from his work realizes after he is retired that he is no longer useful to the company. He once was very important to his company. He was the CEO. He was the chief boss. Everyone answered to him. He was vital for the success of the company. And one day he either is fired or retires, and he finds out that the company continue on, continues on without him. And the thing that he thought he was so vital for doesn't even remember him. They don't need him. And so he has learned that life is vain, that everything done under the sun is vanity. And he has thus learned to reject sin and vice, because those things destroy and destroy the body and corrupt the soul. He has learned to be self-controlled, to have mastery over his own body, knowing, as Romans 6 says, that the end of those shameful acts is death. As the man who didn't do it all right early in his life has now come of age and seen the effects of his sinful choices play out over the course of a lifetime and the death and destruction to his body, to his relationships, to his soul that has happened because of the sin that he participated as, an, as a young man have now come to bear on his life. And he says, oh no, don't do it this way. He knows that the end result of sin is death so he no longer presents his body to those sinful lusts, but he instead presents his body as a slave to righteousness that leads to eternal life. So he has gained control of his body, self-control. Number four, he's sound in doctrine. You say, wait, wait, that's not what it says. It says sound in faith. Yes, okay, but um, to not give you a, a lesson here in the Greek, um, I will summarize conclusion for you. Uh, Paul has very specifically said, sound in the faith, sound in the love, and sound in the steadfastness. And in the Greek, what that means then is that those things are all tied together under one idea, soundness. So soundness covers faith, love, and steadfastness. Furthermore, the way he's structured it in the Greek, he then connects it back to sound doctrine. So sound doctrine plays itself out, expands itself out into these three things, faith, love, and steadfastness. Or you may have heard it said, faith, hope, and love. The idea is there. But it isn't just a generic doctrine or a generic faith, love, and steadfastness. No, it is a specific one. It is a specific or particular 
faith, love, and steadfastness. It is the particular, important, necessary faith. Faith in what? Faith in something, not faith general. People will say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a man of faith. Faith in what? Oh, I just, I'm very religious. A, a religious about what? The world has no idea what it is to have faith. Faith is in something. And in our case, faith in someone. That is faith in Jesus Christ. And what about Jesus Christ? That he lived, died, was buried, rose from the dead, and is coming back again. Faith in that message. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Faith not only for salvation, that we'll have eternal life, but faith in sanctification. That same gospel that saved us is the one that sanctifies us, the one that makes us more like God. An old man had figured this out. And they know that God has never forsaken them. They know this truth. They've walked through life. They've seen hardship. They've seen difficulty. They've been experienced every pain that life has to offer. And they know that God has never left them or forsaken them. Their faith is unwavering. They are sound in faith. They know that it is the beginning, the starting point of everything. James says that you should no longer waver in your faith, but be anchored to Christ. Since your faith has been tested and proven to be true, that is the advantage of age, is that you don't know it intellectually anymore, you know it experientially. But I've walked through the life that is here, through the vanity of it all, through the pain of it all, and I know that God is good. That's the advantage of age. I'm a fairly young man, 35-ish, 35. Sounds like I get a little bit of a memory thing that you guys talk about. It's failing me. I know intellectually that God is good. I have some experience about God's faithfulness. But you people who are twice my age can testify to God's goodness, can you not? out there. They have learned um, to not trust in their body. As their body starts to fail them and their strength diminishes, they know they can't trust that anymore. The young man thinks he's invincible. The young man will drive the car 95 miles an hour around a turn and find out he is not invincible. The old man has learned better. He is frail and weak as cancer and bone deterioration starts to ravage his body. He knows that life is short. Young men think that they can accomplish whatever they put their mind to. What a foolish statement that is. No, you can't. The old man knows that. He's tried and failed many times. Tried to accomplish things and realized, I can't accomplish anything that I put my mind to. I can fail at anything I put my mind to, that's for sure, but not accomplish everything. <laughs> the old man has learned that man plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. They no longer question God's goodness, righteousness, and power. But they testify to this in every way. Secondly, they are sound in faith. Sorry, sound in love. Love of what? 
there has to be an object for love. Primarily, love of God. It's real. It's known. It's felt. The world has a love that is superficial, arbitrary, emotional, changeable. The love that an old man knows is primarily based in God. It's love toward God because God first loved us. It isn't something that can be manufactured or made up. No, his love is based in his love, his God's love for him, and his reciprocal love to God. It's the foundation of his love. But it extends to a second part, his love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible says that we will be known by our love for one another. And who does that better than the old man? He no longer fights and quarrels with other believers. It's not worth it. Wisdom from above is peaceable, slow to anger, willing to yield. The old man doesn't stuck in pride. He's willing to say, you know what? Let's try it your way. I might be wrong here. Let's, let's do it your way. Let's see. He's willing to love his brothers and sisters in Christ, to sacrificially serve them, to be a good example of what works are. As he puts into practice his faith. And finally, his love towards the lost. The world... Um, hurts, persecutes, and the old man does not revile in return. He takes his example from Jesus and entrusted himself to God. When he suffers, he doesn't threaten. He trusted himself to God, trusts God with the justice. The young man wants to take vengeance for the wrongs that are done in the world. The old man says, God will handle vengeance. I tried vengeance and it went badly for me. I don't know how to handle it. I can't control the anger. It's too much for me. I'm going to let God handle that. Instead, he prays for his enemies. He gives them food and water and shelter. And he gives them the hope of the gospel to his enemies, to those who would hurt him. The old man loves the lost. finally a steadfastness this is where age really comes into play the old man has stayed the course trials have come his faith has been tested he was steadfast in that and learned to love his body has begun to break down and fail but he doesn't do his Job's wife recommended he do. He doesn't just curse God and die. No, instead he praises God and rejoices in the trial. Nothing shakes him anymore. He's been through it all. At the end of his life, he says, hey, hey young man, persevere. Stay true. God is faithful. Love others. Don't waver in your faith. Yeah, yeah, life is difficult. Circumstance is hard. I know, I've been through it. But persevere. He doesn't fear death anymore. He welcomes it, knowing that it takes him to a Savior. The world is terrified of death. It's 
why they hate age. They want to stay young. They want to live forever. We're not to adopt this thinking. No, we, we look forward to the day that we get to go be with our Savior. We're here. We have purpose. So important. You old people, you have purpose here. You've become an example of Christ to the church. You're a rock of faith that produces love. You say, okay, that's the old people. What about you young people? Well, we'll get to you later, but for today, young people, find an old man like this. Go find one. They're here in abundance. Go find one. Spend some time with them. Get out of your own silo. It can be difficult. It can be intimidating. Go find one. Hear their stories. Watch carefully what they're doing. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. And then humbly realize you don't have it all figured out. They have something to teach you. Go learn from them. What if you're an old man sitting here and you say, that's not me. You painted a pretty picture, Daniel. I don't know what that's like. I'm not that way. I'm old, for sure, but I'm not all those things that you talked about. I'm not a godly example. And a matter of fact, I'm just an old grouch, stuck in my own ways, angry at the world, bitter, jealous. Maybe you become more obsessed with your physical health than the health of the next generation. That's okay. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Sound doctrine. Let's read verse 11 and 12. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, the pe- all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He goes on. For the grace of God. That applies to you. I don't care how old you are. You can be trained by grace. You have the life experience. Now take sound doctrine and overlay it on top of your experience and understand your experiences through the teaching of Scripture. Maybe you didn't do it all right. You messed everything up. That's the whole story of the gospel, isn't it? That he redeems those things. Oh, I have nothing to offer the, deli- the new next generation because I messed up my whole life. Great. You told him a lot of what not to do. Understand that properly. Train the young people. Don't do what I did. Here's what you ought to do. You have something to offer. You need to repent of that. Repent of being old and grouchy. Not being old. Don't repent of being old. It's awesome. Repent of being grouchy. Repent of being angry. Be trained by grace. God is willing and ready to forgive everything. Don't throw your hands up at the end of your life and just say, ah, it's too late for me. No, we need you. We need you to renew your mind with the word of God, to understand your life, how it applies to our lives, and teach us what it means to walk with the Lord. God is calling you old men to be an example to the rest of us. We need you. Don't check out. For the benefit of the church, for the perseverance of the saints. God, um, 
put in our church. We thank you um, that our church is not uh, an individual group of young people or only old people, but that you have mixed this church with a blessing. Not every church has that advantage, but you've given it to Country Oaks, and we thank you for that, Lord. Don't let us despise that. Let us value that, Lord, that we could honor you, that we could take the teaching of the old people, apply it to our lives, understand what it is to walk in a godly way, to love others. Lord, we pray for your blessing on this church as we seek to walk in your ways, that we would honor our elderly, that we would value what they have to say and what they have to teach us, Lord, that um, they would show us what it is to be godly. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who um, is struggling with anger and bitterness in the end of their life, Lord, that you would comfort them in this, that you would help them to repent and to understand their life in the context of Scripture. I pray for your blessing on our 